And welcome to yet another episode of Let Me Tell You Something. And it might be the match, the episode that you're most looking forward to out of all of the episodes that we've done. In many ways, it's led to this moment. Because we've always been saying we're watching every match that we can find that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated five stars or higher. Well, we're not only going higher, we're going to the highest. Because, Simon, what are we covering tonight? Or in the morning or in the afternoon, depending on when you're listening to it. Well, like um, my favourite window company, this is our Everest. And we're covering Kazuchika Okada versus Kenny Omega at Dominion 2018. And what is very important about this match, Simon? This is the no time limit, two out of three falls encounter where they must, must be a definitive winner after their previous Dominion match ended in a 60-minute Broadway. I don't know if you just can't understand what I'm saying or if you're genuinely building up the anticipation. What is particularly special about this match? (laughs) Well, if you like stars, this has a lot of them. This has seven of them, in fact. (laughs) All right, let's do what we've done for a few of these. Let's read the words of Meltzer himself. So this is him writing in the June 18th, edition of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter for 2018. Um, NJPW Dominion, by the way, got a polling. 993 people were polled. 991 gave it a thumbs up. One gave it a thumbs down. One gave it a thumbs in the middle. And the best match poll, 20 voted for Chris Jericho against Tetsuya Naito. Uh, 953 voted for Kenny Omega versus Kazuchika Okada. And so this is what Dave Meltzer wrote. So I've been watching pro wrestling for 48 years consistently. I'm trying to figure out what the odds are that the two greatest individual performances I have ever seen will be in the same match. On January 4th, 2017, Kazuchika Okada and Kenny Omega had a match that I thought was one of the three best matches I had ever seen. Perhaps the best ever. Some people thought it was the best match they had ever seen. But when it was over, I did think that someday I would see another match that good. The top guys in the industry today keep progressing the drama, art, form and athleticism. Don't get me wrong, anything that is great in its actual place and time is great. But what is great today learns from not only what is great in the past, but what is great all over the world in its present. It's a situation that until the last few decades, that really couldn't happen. But it's easier now than ever before because you can push a few buttons and you can learn far more things that can work and apply them. Okada won what was up to that time the longest New Japan match ever held at the Tokyo Dome. On June 11th, 2017, they met again and went to a 60-minute draw. The first in a New Japan ring in 14 years. The match, in my mind, slightly better. Enough so that I could say, with no reservation, it was the best match I had ever seen. Many other people thought the same. Others had it just as one of the best. Some didn't see it that way. Some didn't get it. Some, for whatever reason, refused to get it for their own political reasons. Almost all awards and voting of international scope have one of these two matches as the best of the year ever for great matches. The best match of the best year ever for great matches, sorry. Moore had the first match, perhaps because it was the first. 
perhaps because it had a clear winner and loser, or perhaps just because the Tokyo Dome, like WrestleMania, magnifies both what is good and what is bad on that night. Still, to me, it was the best match. But it wasn't that much better than a dozen other matches I'd seen. Someday, I figured I would see a better match. On August 12, 2017, the same two wrestlers met again. This time, they had to do a finish, and it had to be done in less than 30 minutes. It was a completely different match. It was a classic to be sure, one of the best ever. Omega finally beat Okada, but the IWGP title wasn't at stake. It was big enough that it more than made up for Omega losing the G1 Tournament Finals and the Tokyo Dome main event spot to Tetsuya Naito. Someday, I figured we would see a better match. In the opinion of the majority, Someday was about 20 or so hours later. The Naito match pulled out more stops, was the finals of the tournament which made it bigger, and was overall was more overall outstanding, but it was also more dangerous. Most figured on January 4th, 2018 that Naito was beating Kokada for the title. I was kind of tipped off that the story of 2018 was going to be Okada setting the all-time record for not just the longest IWGP title reign in history, but longest combination time as champion in history, as well as most consecutive title defences. The idea was to make him the greatest pro wrestling champion of the current era. But a booker can only do so much. You can book a guy to win, and in time, even in a contrived world, those numbers in hindsight look impressive. Long, crappy title reigns sometimes are remembered as legendary, but usually they aren't. I guess as he's thinking about Bob Backlund, someone <laughs> that Meltzer had very harsh opinions of in his early days. People can cry and moan until the cows come home about the subjective method of rating pro wrestling matches. To some, the statistic that Okada's title defences averaged 4.86 stars going into this past week just gets people mad. Makes them dig deep and try and argue that he's really overrated. To some, it means since nobody has ever come close to that, it must be something special. To some, the numbers don't mean that much, but it's pretty clear that the guy is something special. Even in the subjective world, there are also objective numbers. A great business rise during that period, a more international exposure, fame and respect that any Japanese wrestler based in Japan has ever had on an international basis. Okada is a lock to go into the Hall of Fame on the first ballot. The only question left is whether he will break the all-time record set by Kenta Kabashi in 2002 of getting 98% of the vote when he goes in. Yes, this was a legendary title reign, one of the best of all time. As far as big matches go, the best of all time. Ric Flair did it far more often, carrying some mediocre and even terrible guys to good outings, and one can argue him as the greatest all-round performer that the industry has ever seen. But as far as top-tier matches, I've seen them in small gyms, big arenas and national shows with Ricky Steamboat and Barry Windham on down. They were great. It was a different era. Shawn Michaels was immensely talented. Kent Kabashi could drive emotions like no other. This guy combined what they all had. He was the most creative of them all, he was as good as any athlete as any, and partially because of the time, put more thought and on his big shows, had generally better opponents. Nobody could match his consistent match quality when the title was at stake. We knew it as it was going on. In Japan, they did as well. A poll was done recently among the general public as to the greatest wrestler to ever perform in the country of Japan. It had been nearly 55 years since Riki Dozan passed away. People know of him, know the legend, but few people in the public, and really none under the age of 60 or 65, actually saw him and have the emotional connection to him. Antonio Inoki and Giant Baba were the top two, who had decades of primetime national television, beating every big star that was in pro wrestling. Satoru Sayama was a short-term cultural phenomenon. He came when television ratings were high, and was likely no star previously, and he completely changed the game. And was like no star previously, and he completely changed the game. 
Dave Meltzer can really run on with his thoughts. Um, <laughs> number four was Okada. At the time, he was 29 years old, and while he had the advantage of being today's top star, wrestling is so much less popular mainstream than his, that his finish stunned most long-time fans. Not that he wasn't that good, but that he didn't get the exposure the others did to the general public. If it was a poll of hardcore wrestling fans, the result would be less surprising. Equally surprising was that number two was a foreign star. That the number two foreign star behind Stan Hansen was Okada's new rival. Ahead of Luthez, The Destroyer, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Bruiser Brody, The Funk Brothers, Mil Mascaras, and all the stars when they were on the front page of the daily sports newspapers and magazines on the newsstands and on network primetime television. When Omega won the second longest championship match ever held in Japan, the initial reaction was that a two-year-long storyline had played out perfectly. Suddenly, in that moment, it was clear that the decision not to put the title on Naito was no longer even arguable. Even those of us who believed Naito winning to be the right move, but accepted the big picture that this was the run to create a legend, and breaking records were a part of it, and that there was a very good reason Naito didn't win, well, at that moment it was clear we were wrong. Naito wins, the key records aren't broken. The Tanahashi match never happens, this match never happens, at least not in this way. Uh, so yeah, then they go into sort of the match. Um, there was an emotion he could bring out of a match with Okada that Naito couldn't, this Omega. Tanahashi could get that emotion and there was a great story there, but it wasn't the best story. This was something that rarely happens in wrestling. Mitsuhara Masawa did it without a long chase in 1990 against Jumbo Saruta, which turned into an amazing business run. Kerry Von Erich did it for a moment with Ric Flair in 1984 at Texas Stadium, but three weeks later it was meaningless. Dusty Rhodes did it the first time in Tampa with Harley Race, but five days later it was over and meaningless. Jack Briscoe could have done it in Tampa or Miami Beach with Dory Funk Jr. in 1973, but in fact that never happened. Uh, so let's let's go. So there's a lot more in this. If you want to, uh, hopefully this has whetted your appetite, and you know you can see that Dave Meltzer, he knows his history. He can pluck things out from all different areas, and he can back up what he's talking about, whether you agree with this match being seven stars or not. But Simon, what are your initial thoughts just about this match? Because we can't we can't possibly go into a bloody. 70 minute match and do it a blow for blow, move for move accounts. I actually would quite like this to be shorter than the one we did for the 60 minute time limit draw, if at all possible. Because, um, so, so I think one of the weird things for me watching this was the subsequent knowledge that six months down the road, Omega isn't even a part of this company almost dulls the significance of this moment to me. In, in retrospect. I yeah I can understand where you're coming from there, um, but I I think you've got to take the the payoff in isolation um, and sort of separate Omega's decision to go elsewhere from this match. Um, what my initial thoughts about the match itself? Uh, I love the way they incorporated obviously Kenny's uh, recent non Okada storyline. Um, and had obviously Ibushi in his corner this time, and they like they spoke about how he's like hit the gym harder. Ibushi's like covering bases that maybe the books didn't cover, and uh, Omega's like got an got a new level. He's got like a new gear he can maybe slip into to finally get the job done. I think and- they're implying that Omega has an emotional um, void filled by having Ibushi back in his life as his friend. 
that the Bullet Club could never quite give him. Yeah. But and he was always a reluctant member of the Bullet Club, that he'd done it as a shortcut, essentially. And you can look at it all the way back to when his non-interference interference, um, Kostibushi, the title, when he first challenged AJ Styles for the IWGP title. And that then when he took over as leader of the Bullet Club, he forms the elite and seems to want to reinvent it as something outside of the Bullet Club. Yeah. And then we have the whole Cody, you know, trying to usurp him from within... To the point that the Bullet Club splits and Omega... I mean, we see Omega, he is not in Bullet Club gear for this match. No, no, he's... Um... The first time in these four matches that he's not wearing some sort of Bullet Club paraphernalia. Or being announced as representing the Bullet Club, I don't think. Yeah, it's sort of like the bit you saw, you see in like a lot of um, action movies or like well, sports movies where they have to go back to their roots um, to sort of like rediscover who they are and what brought them to the table and maybe that's why he's one of the reasons why his hair has gone blonde which was the color that he had when he was first in ddt with ibushi as part of the golden lovers yeah and yeah i I think he's just you know trying something different he's he's at ease he's at peace Mm. he feels more at home with the way he interacts with ibushi and he's from a purely physical standpoint, he looks jacked. Yeah, he like they talk a lot about ripped. the twenty extra pounds he put on, he of muscle mass, I should say, that he put on, and he does look. He looks ready to go. Like the power advantage um, that he's had. Well, Okada. It's been weird with Okada because Okada has power, but he has like skinny, tall power. Mm. It just looks different. Um, now there's like clearly defined extra level of power mm. within Omega. Both physically and emotionally, Simon. Yes, yes. His, his, uh, his muscles and his soul have been nourished. <laughs> I wonder if they both had chemical enhancements to them. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that... Also, I don't think that Omega portrays arrogance really like he did especially in the first match where he's saying i'm going to take over new japan this is my moment and um you know he's 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 basically crazed at that point yeah like you say he's calmer at this stage when they start out in the lockup and everything he doesn't it's very very tentative though they don't even necessarily want you know they're it kind of reminds me of the, the later Tanahashi Okada matches where they're well, very yeah, yeah. slow you to engage because of... they know each other's movements so well at this point. Or they're, or they're, but also they're wary of they know what the opponent can do to them as well. And if you sort of expand it from a two out of three falls standpoint, mm. um, especially like because obviously the first fall, neither side wants to lose the first fall. Well, just from a strat- lose any fall. Yeah, but from a strategy point, you know you've got to go long and to try and get two straight falls over a guy that's... Well, I find it hard to believe anyone strategizes to lose a fall in a two out of three falls match. No one strategizes in a football game to let a goal in. I think you're you're, you're mirroring what Don Callis says in commentary. And I get why they're doing it, but that's one of those things where it's like, logically, no one ever thinks, oh, well, you know... Yeah, no, but but as a a result of that, that's why they are being quite cagey in the first fall. Yeah. Uh, Because what you're saying is correct. Neither side wants to lose any particular fall, but 
the, my point is if you lose the first fall um, and then you've got to get to you beat this guy twice in a row yeah. when it's n- neither side has yeah. ever beaten this guy yeah, twice course, in a row yeah. the same night. So it, that you're in uncharted territory. Yeah, I get that. So you, you've got to like, you know, be quite cagey. And it's very interesting the way the um, first fall ends as mm. well. It's not a big move. No, it's a cradle. People, it's a cradle. Well, and that I... just that just plays into like the the chess match mm. element, which has been in their matches before, but it's sort of amplified. Also, in I, th- I think it's also a way of because, like I said, with a lot of wrestling now, you have to play it on two levels. You play it on the level of the match as a wrestling match, and then you play it on the level of a match as a lot of people view it as a booking situation. Like people think, oh, there's going to be a finish on this or on that. I think a lot of people will go in assuming, well, Okada, even if he loses, will probably win one four with the Rainmaker. Yeah. And for him to win with the Cradle, and you're assuming Omega's going to win, you're like, well, surely they're not. They're going to give Okada some sort of big, you know, strong win in one of the pinfalls. So that makes you then start to second guess yourself, maybe. And also, it gives them a way for them to have a pinfall at a relatively early stage in their match, uh, given that they've been previously only usually you know went 45 minutes before omega got pinned in the first match they went to a 60 minute time limit the second match the third match it was like in the 28th minute of a 30 minute time limit match where okada has gone in really injured yeah so they've had to wrestle at a faster pace um whereas in this one i think that the first fall happens around the 26 28 minute mark yeah and yeah from a storytelling point of view if someone was to like take a series of rainmakers or a one winged angel mm. and then gets pinned for the first fall they then got to go but they're basically starting like okada started in that g1 match what i like mid match they're like already pretty banged up like midway through and what... it just ha- makes it harder to tell a story off the back of that yeah what i like as well with the ending of the two falls and the start of the second fall after two minute rest periods which was um an uh, unusual choice. Usually they go for one at, at a maximum, if at all. Yeah, um, it's slightly jarring, but because of the big fight feel, they get away with it. Mm. And obviously... Um, and for the sake got... of their own health, it was good that they would rehydrate anyway. Yeah, and that because they've got uh, quite charismatic seconds mm. as well, that sort of helps them too. Well, what I, what I wanted to say there was that in the first fall, Okada gets it with a flash pin. So Omega's not hurt at that stage. He's he's. But what happens in that moment is he takes an emotional, psychological draining. It's like if a, an underdog football team lets in a goal against Man City. You know, if you're in an FA Cup match and you're like a lower tier ga- uh, team, you're already you know you're already on edge. And then when they've scored a goal, you're like, well, this makes it even harder to get past it. Like you're saying, getting two falls on Okada when he couldn't get one until Okada was wounded and um, it was in a tournament setting, not for the title. Um, Whereas when Omega pins him in the second fall off of a one-winged angel, it's Okada is physically in a state for the next two minutes. Like, he can't get up. Whereas in the two-minute build-up of the previous one, it's Ibushi trying to keep him calm and talk strategy to him 
Yeah. Um, Whereas if he'd had the books, it, it would just be the books telling him like, oh, yeah, you've got this guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's funny as well. We don't hear young bucks speak, and you don't. I can't hear Ibushi in Japanese making a lot of noise throughout the match compared to the young bucks did in all of the. I think all three of the matches. I can't remember if they were in the G One climax match. I don't remember them around ringside for the G One climax. Well, I could be for the first two. They were yeah. probably there for the first two. I yeah. I I just think it's um. It's cheerleaders versus coach, if you see what I mean. Well, like, it's funny. You've got they... a lot of empty noise from the books, but Abushi is telling him, this is the game plan. This is how you're going to execute it. Here, okay, this, we're behind. Here's how we're going to adapt our plan, and here's how you're still going to win. Yeah. Well, what I, what I found interesting about that as well was the fact that Gado doesn't actually talk that much to Abushi after the first fall. He's just there with the water and a towel, essentially. And maybe it's because, like, that is all he needs to be as a cheerleader. And Okada's so good, he doesn't even necessarily need... He's just a cheerleader and a spokesperson, as opposed to an actual, you know, Bill Belichick, Alex Ferguson coach or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's not like... Again, I, I don't mean to obviously go back to the handicap of two straight falls thing but you've got an assurance if you've gone one up mm. haven't you and like again you've not you've conversely to how long they go for first falls usually which they do obviously make a load of references to on commentary throughout the match as well um you've not really exerted yourself comparatively oh, yeah. to what you have in previous occasions at the start of the second fall and okada gets in uh kenny in the corner and drop kicks him to the outside and everything Okada is confident and in control, and Omega is clearly rattled and nervous, essentially. Yeah. Uh, this was actually the analogy. It's a better analogy than Man City. I said this is like being a goal down against Jose Mourinho's Chelsea in the mid-noughts. Oh, Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're just not getting through. And what I like is that Okada is trying to get into Omega's head psychologically by being arrogant in the same way that he'd been to Tanahashi and in a way in the build-up to Shibata until he then started getting the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> and so, and he tries to incorporate a bit of Shibata uh, psychology, I guess, because o- Omega hits him with a chop and he no-sells it at first, but then he can't keep no-selling it because Omega chops really, really hard. <laughs> with those so, giant spade hands he's yeah, got so he has to boot him down at one point when Omega charges at him and then he's like oh my god my chest <laughs> it hurts so much why did I do that why did I let him do that again how did oh. Shibata do this <laughs> <laughs> that man's a psychopath mm. what is also notable actually to go back to the first fall is that Omega employs the V trigger very early on they move that their trademark moves are placed in different where, places to where they were used in the previous matches. He goes for a like they do the whole traditional lock up. Okada gets someone into the corner or into the ropes and does a little cocky slap to fake after faking out a strike. Then Omega does the same to him and then surprise him like he's gonna try. He tries to hit an immediate V trigger and Okada gets out of the way and he hits the corner. But then when they go to the outside, and Okada, as he usually does, controls on the outside at the start. Like I said, very Ric Flair-esque. He goes and gets ready to do his running along and, and cross body, but Omega catches him with a V-trigger, and that's in like the first five minutes of the match. Whereas what the a catch that is as well. Yeah. Beautiful shot. Previously, 
Omega's V-Trigger and One-Winged Angel attempts and Okada's drop kicks and tombstones and Rainmaker attempts don't usually come until later on in the match. Like, you know, into the 30-minute point or so when they're reaching the final stretch of it. Yeah. Um, but in this one, like I said, Omega utilizes it early. Um, sorry, go on. You, you were saying something. No, I was just going to say it's it's a, because of like the sort of the we've got three final stretches yeah. in this match. You know, I mean they, they've got, sort of got to break it down into parts. Mm. And I guess you want to come out the blocks early doors. That's why Kenny goes for the V trigger early, and maybe that's part of Ibushi's strategies. Like, well, and they surprise them. He wouldn't expect him to do it at this stage. Yeah, and I think they, they do make another um, allusion to that on commentary as well. It's like swamp him early doors just don't let him get comfortable wrestle quickly that's your pace it's also noticeable that in the first fall is when they do anything close to body part work omega targets okada's back with body slams and a camel clutch and everything and okada targets uh, kenny omega's ribs after he drop kicks him off the apron and omega lands rib first on the steel rail which is oh yes looks. yeah and he just makes and that like, winded has... gasping sound yeah. really like well as well. And that's after Okada has hit the first tombstone in the match on the apron, which left Omega susceptible for a charging drop kick that sends him into the railings, that old Bret Hart bump. Yeah. I, I guess uh, Kenny later on sort of cancels out the rib work more than anything by like uh, double stomping that table into Okada's ribs. Mm. It was funny that as well, to get to the table... Uh, obviously a recurrence from the first two matches as well. Although, is the first match the only one where anyone ever ends up going through a table? Off the top of my head, I I, I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely that's didn't happen at the G1. Definitely you know, didn't happen in the draw. And it didn't happen in this one, I know that much. Yeah. Because that was one of the things I realised after the fact. It's <clears> almost like they've, they've broken the Chekhov's gun rule that they introduce the table, and then it doesn't factor into the finish of the match or into the third act of the match. Yeah. Well, it's a good way of just having something there just to, like, create further tension. It's just, like, a, a good spot to have. Because uh, when Okada try, uh, No, when Kenny tries to German uh, suplex Okada through the table, it's Okada's, like, just holding on for dear life and Gato's facial expressions... Uh, that really sell the danger of that moment. You don't necessarily even need to execute it, and from a safety standpoint, it would probably be best if you didn't. Well, yeah, again, this match does not include the bumps on the crazy scale of the first match with the top rope dragon superplex or Kenny going flying out from the backdrop through the table, which Okada does try and do in this match again. He, like, sets him up and does do the backdrop, but... uh, Omega's able to land on his feet, I think. It's it's things like that which make me like sequels of big matches more than like the original ones sometimes because you've set your table. As long as you've from, seen the previous match, of course. Of course, yeah. From a storyline perspective though, because you've you've done stuff like that, you can just the threat of that stuff happening creates its own tension to go back to the table point. Or, like, if they're on the top rope and all Kenny's got to do is just, like, get the full Nelson in and the crowd are going, oh, God, no, not again. And, um, you know, that just makes it even, well, it's safer for the performers and it's just 
a lot more tools in your toolbox to like create get the crowd like absorbed into what's going on to get them feeling nervous feeling scared well yeah i mean um so yeah i've just got my in my notes here like the whole sequence like the, the biggest move i suppose in the whole match that's dangerous is when omega does a top rope uh axi shodu where he does the brain buster but he puts the legs into like a, a figure four yeah uh, position um, <clears throat> so the exchange goes Okada points to the table and attempts to backdrop Omega out Omega uh, turns it into a running tornado DDT then he gets on the apron and tries to German suplex Okada through the table um, then he tries to turn it into a dragon suplex when Okada's blocking by holding onto the ropes Okada breaks it then Omega tries to turn it into a one winged angel which Omega, which Okada then tries to turn into a Rainmaker, which then Omega turns into a Reverse Rana. Oh, you love him! Again. You love him! And that takes uh, o- o- Okada to the outside, and he barely gets in on the nineteen count. Uh, it wouldn't then, be a New then, Japan match without that spot either. Not. And then Omega immediately. What I love is how Omega immediately uh, seizes on a moment with the with the V trigger. It's such a cool and an effective move to do it with. Uh, so as soon as Okada gets in on the, the 19 count, he hits the V-trigger, sets up for the one-winged angel. Then Okada turns it into his spinning, jumping tombstone, which I think you remember, that was the version of the movie he did that set him up for the Rainmaker to win the match in their first encounter. Yeah, that's um, after he'd like done his big yell. Yeah. No, no, he, did, he hit it, then hit his big yell. Because so when, he, when through... he does his scream, that's when you know he's going to that, like, he's going super cyan sort yeah. of. And then he goes for his Rainmaker, but Okada's, Omega's able to turn that into a Uranagi, which was a repeat of a movie. I know he'd done in the Dominion, the last year's Dominion match. I think that was the first time he'd done it. It was such an awesome-looking Uranagi. It was, like, ha- a lot harsher than the one The Rock does. A lot more dangerous-looking as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's, like, the, the angle. He doesn't, like, try and land him flat. He tries to land him, like, sort of more on his neck. Mm. Sort of like Samoa Joe's, but Samoa Joe's is like just more of a spike into the mat. So then they I, lo- to- I love the Sorry, sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just love the way like certain people can just just smash you into the canvas. It looks such a good move. And then we go into the traditional strike exchange, which again ends in a, in the way that I love it when o- Omega again just his his movement, his physicality, and the quickness he does it just slips behind Okada and immediately hits him with a snapdragon suplex. But then he runs into an Okada drop kick. <laughs> <laughs> but then Omega then hits him with his own drop kick, which he hit, you know, he jumps so high he nearly misses the, the Okada's head with it. That's just like a um the sort of like a first world problem with a re- like wrestling ability, isn't it? My drop kicks are too high. Yeah. Just what what an age we live in when the athleticism's at that level where you okay. can actually jump that high and sort of go over a dude's head. Who's taller than you? Yeah, and like Okada's not a tiny man at all. It's like Kony Omega in a job interview. He's very much a blame your weaknesses. I care too much. <laughs> <laughs> Some people say I work too hard. <laughs> I'm one of those perfectionists. <laughs> But he is, really. I mean, he's hitting one of Okada's trademark moves, known for how beautiful he does it, almost as well as, as Okada does it. Maybe as well. I don't know how you feel about it. Almost too well. Mm. Right. Um, 
And so Okada then goes for another drop kick and Omega turns it into a powerbomb in midair, follows up with V trigger. He goes for the J driller, and I think that was how it, the previous one. No, the previous one ended with him going for the one winged angel, wasn't it? And Okada turns it into a cradle. Am I misremembering it? I'm just going to find the notes. No, yeah, it was one winged angel into oh, yeah, a yeah, cradle. Yeah, so. No, 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 it's not. It's not. Um, it was Okada. Go, well, it was Kenny going for the J driller, then Okada turning that into a tombstone, then going for the Rainmaker. Omega turning it into the Sunset Flip, but then Okada doing the David Boy Smith, Bret Hart, SummerSlam 92. Dropping on the legs. Dropping on the legs, pulling all the weight forward. Um, no, dropping on the arms, uh, dropping on the shoulders of, of Omega. And that is exactly the same thing that happens with this one, where he goes for the J-Drill and Okada again turns it into that cradle. And it's a really close three count, two count, sorry. Yeah, they time it perfectly that yeah. and you, like, you can just see red shoes afterwards just like there's a little part of him where he's just like thank god he got his shoulders up like he didn't want it to end that way yeah uh, Okadas then hits the V trigger then he hits the J driller that he was looking for before that gets a really long two count Okada's on his all fours and that's when Omega hits another V trigger I mean he must hit about a half dozen in this whole match or more oh easily more, more than half uh, then he's finally able to hit the one-winged angel and that gets the three count. And like I said, after that, Okada's basically down for almost the entirety of the two minutes, just flat on the ground. Yeah. Um, and so Omega just positions himself perfectly as Okada's sitting up. The bell goes and immediately... I mean, what if he'd have just done a V-trigger and then the second one-winged angel then for a three count? How would you have felt if that had been how it finished? I'd love to have seen the crowd's response. Mm-hmm. It would be a great way of really cementing him mm. as well. Uh, just to like uh, go to your like half a dozen sort of thing. In about the, sec- the the closing section of the second fall that you mentioned, I've just checked my notes for that section. There's four V-triggers there, plus this one he hits. So there's five in about the space of five minutes. Well, then is that excessive? Uh, now, this is... I wouldn't say it's a criticism, but it's something I've noticed about um, Omega matches. He does love to hit that move a lot. But then Ric Flair hits his chops a lot. Yeah, Okada's that, his, hit his, his version of the chops, yeah. Yes, yes it is. He hits that more than Okada hits his drop kicks. True, he does. But, you know what I mean? Like, Okada does hit a lot of drop kicks. Mm. But again, it's like... It's like Tanahashi's dragon screws. Yeah. Omega's in such trouble. Uh, Omega's got Okada in such trouble at this point that the only way you can get out of it is for Omega to escape the one-winged angel, have him in perfect position, ripcord, rainmaker. Omega does the full Marty Gen- Well, even not even the Marty Gennetti, actually. This is a different kind of 180 cell. To the point that he accidentally Pele kicks. Uh, Pele kicks um, Okada on the way down. <laughs> I do love how like the commentary quickly try and cover like they 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 lean into that quite mm. quickly. That just the quick um, adaptability of their like the improvisation is the word I'm looking for. I I really like the commentary team for New Japan. What it uh, and I'm sure you do because it doesn't have Matt Striker in it. Of course not. <laughs> Thought I'd uh, beat you to that punch. Uh, I I've you know I, I try not to I try to channel him out of my life now. It's like the equivalent of blocking in Twitter in real life. Or that Black Mirror episode. Are you saying it's like um, that toxicity in your life? You're just like, you know, you're yeah. cancelling it. Yeah, dirt off your shoulder and all that. Yeah. 
But again, another callback to a previous match is Okada crawling to Omega to get the pin off of that one off that Rainmaker, which was how the sixty minute time limit match ended. And it's around that sort of part time in the match as well, I suppose. Um and Omega's able to kick out at very late in the three, and it's not like a full cover of Okada's as well. Yeah, no, it's but, it's sort of drapes arm. At this point then the whole of this part is just them utterly drained of energy and barely being like they are out on their feet. They're trying to hit a tombstone, but neither of them really has the power in them at that time. Yeah. To the point that when Okada then whips Omega for the drop kick, reminiscent of when o- Omega just falls when he's trying to set him up for the Rainmaker, um Okada, Omega just stumbles and falls to the ground and Okada ends up landing on his back off of a drop kick that he has no one to hit. So uh, yeah, it's just that that sort of thing where it's such a great level of exertion. Uh, you see, like um, the battle for the tombstone. Um, just to jump a little bit earlier into the third fall, just a hair is a really good example of like they realise they're in the bottom of the ninth now, and, and like they have to defend any move that's like tried against them with all their might. That's just a really good way of conveying that. Yeah, they just do such amazing work here of just how little energy they've got and they get these short bursts and then it's just that's as good much as it's good for and it will only last them so long. So Omega gets up, tries to get Okada up for a power bomb and Okada's blocking it, but also Omega doesn't have the power. So then we get reminiscent of the old all Japan days of the Kawada kicks and everything is Omega palm striking the back of his neck. Yeah. To get him up. Goes for the power bomb. Ta- uh, Okada turns it into the Hurricane Rana, which Omega, you can see a split second moment of him going, wait, he's, I can, and then just doing the Styles Clash. I love yeah. the way that Omega played that up. And I love the fact there was a Styles Clash in the match, because yeah, obviously yeah. call back to the former Bullet Club leader. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got, you've got to... Uh, the guy I, that I, brought, the guy that was leader when Omega joined the Bullet Club, because he was never in the Devitt version of the Bullet Club. Yeah. And the man that he had to try and help, who helped to have Ibushi lose the title, and obviously Ibushi has, you'd assume, forgiven him for that, given that he's there, and giving him encouragement later on into the match, uh, towards yeah. the end of the match. Jack and Ibushi just at the side was in Japanese, going, you cheeky little fucker. <laughs> he's like, well, it worked for me. It beat me. <laughs> well, yeah. We get, you know, the best shot in maybe all of wrestling which is the ca- the camera focused on the wrestler in the corner and Omega in the far end sprinting in with the corner's corner V trigger. Oh yeah. Just l- I love that I love the way they like the way New Japan shoots its moves. They mm-hmm. nail it. They really do. It's like watching the polar opposite of World of Sport. Yeah. But uh but then he goes for the one wing danger and he just collapses. Can't hold him up. Just completely that- and utterly spent at this yeah. point. He has nothing in him, and again, it's so it's brilliant that they can do it to make it look natural to the point that in a moment you can think that that was almost a screw up, but it wasn't the way that they played it up, and it worked within the context of the match. Yeah. So then he goes for the one winged angel. Okada reverses that into the tombstone. Omega reverses that into the package tombstone, which gets a really long two. It's amazing that the fans like still buy those things because he's never won with that move, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it's the same way. But I think they've, they, again, they've been able to convince people that they've got nothing in them anymore. Yeah, same way when Roman hits the Superman punch later on. And well, if like, he goes for a pin after that, like, 
people still think, oh, well, it might that, be. That would be like how Masao will sometimes win a match against Kawada or something just by hitting an elbow because it was just the last bit of energy they had left. Yeah, the, yeah, the All Japan matches were really good at that. Mm. Um, doesn't always have to be an have taken a page out of their book in this. Well, they sort of did in the first fall, didn't they? Uh, really, I, I guess that was the cradle. That wasn't a. That wasn't just a. Yeah, but it's com- compared to how the other matches between the two have ended. Yeah, but I don't associate all Japan matches with cradle flash finishes. No, no. What I mean, what I mean is obviously they've gone away from using just the finishes strictly rather than like a strike. Um, well, again, I think that was just reserves for later on in the match. They didn't want to blow it all immediately because neither of them had hit that move at that point. Neither of them had hit. I don't think yeah. Okada had hit a Rainmaker at that point, and Omega had definitely not hit a One-Winged Angel at that point. But in terms of, like, I think the way they want this feud and the work they'd put into building this feud, I think for the third fall it was always going to be a finisher that, yeah. that sealed the deal. There's there's no way it couldn't be, just because well, of the moment it was. Maybe you could have got away with doing, like, um, Okada pinning Omega. Uh, no. Omega pinning Okada after a V trigger for the second fall or something like that, or if he like had like Rana'd him off like the top rope reverse Rana, and you could just have him roll through or something like that. What if he hit a Phoenix Splash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what Ibushi tells Omega to do at that moment. I do love that. It's like try my thing, try it. Okay. And he misses it. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it's that story of Omega has to be himself. He can't rely... Like how when he won the G1 Climax against Goto, he did Devitt's move. He did Ibushi's move. He did Styles' move. But it was his move that won it. Yeah. Use what brought you to the dance. Mm. And what you're comfortable with, I guess. Yeah. But oh, could you imagine the shock if... Um, like you could have done a story there where if he hit the Phoenix Splash, missed, and Okada pinned him off the back of that, mm. and then like Omega just blames Ibushi for him never getting the win or something like yeah, that. Well, you could have done that story. I mean, I know, I know. Now I'm now we're just getting into the round of fantasy booking, but because they'd built this up to this point, they had there's so many like ways they could have written written it and like you could just see that in your head sometimes one thing i thought was noticeable at this point was that okada hits a drop kick but he doesn't manage to get full height uh, he doesn't hit where he usually hits he sort of gets him around the chest or the midsection again i wonder if that was just some of that went a little bit wrong in that moment or if it was to say he's not got he's not got much left in him because then he goes for the tombstone omega uh, escapes that and hits the v trigger and then does his usual standing you know, goes, you know, when he's just lying, just sitting on his knees and hitting those really nasty standing knee strikes. Yeah. Um, but then Okada uh, holds, uh, then he holds Okada up for a third one, but then gets caught with a drop kick, uh, a full length, a full height drop kick. But then when Okada goes for the tombstone, he still can't get it. So then he does a drop kick to weaken him and then he goes for his Rainmaker. And here comes another callback, a lot of people's favorite spot. In this match as a callback to the previous favourite spot in the Dominion match last year. And also like the Katsuyori Shibata match as well. He hits the Rainmaker and it's Okada that crumbles. Yeah. Because he just throws everything into it. He's sort of just like... At, at the well it's like he, he has it. nothing in that moment either. Because yeah. Omega doesn't go down. 
Yeah, well, when I yeah, like when I say everything, I mean everything he has left. would be a better way of wording it. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it's just the the emotional exertion, you know, of just hitting that move again, and it's just like, ah, oh, it's not moved. What's going on? What do I do? Where am I? How do I get out of this? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's such an exhausting run. Basically, it's such an incredible finish. Well, the whole second fall is essentially one long finish. Um, and they're both on their knees. They both have nothing left in them when they're trying to do strikes. But then they start slapping each other, and it's almost like the insult of a slap is what wills them back up. And they get up to their feet, and they're trading slaps. And then Okada hits him with a short rainmaker, holds on, pulls him up for another short rainmaker. And he's crawling to the dazed uh, Omega with a like this, you know. Okada does Okada does gritted teeth better than anyone, I think. <laughs> um, and then he goes for a rainmaker, and o- Omega's able to turn it into a German suplex and maintains waist control. All about keeping those holds on. Mm. But then Okada reverses and hits his own German suplex, goes for the rainmaker, and Omega ducks that and turns that into a German suplex. And at that point, I have to make an extra note in the top corner of my pages of notes because I didn't have enough space anymore. Um, again, this is reminiscent of like the, the elbowing out and the desperation of just, you know, who can hold control at that point, like all the Tanahashi matches, is who's got the control. Um, and then Omega gets a reverse Rana. Your favourite move? Uh... I mean, the fact that Okada at this point can do all the work that needs to go into doing a reverse Rana is just incredible. I mean, yeah, these two guys are like cardio monsters. And and this at this point, I always love it when a guy is pulling himself up against his opponent, but maybe even more so is when Omega's trying to pull himself up from red shoes, <laughs> only to run into a drop kick. It's just beautiful. Like, it's the... Facial expression of of Omega as he does it as well, and Red Shoot's sort of like indignation slash like I I don't want to be like the guy that helped you get back to your feet, but I also don't want to like interrupt your flow because this is awesome and I I'm, I'm enjoying watching it. So is this next move a bit of a botch or is it exactly how it's supposed to go? Okada goes for the Rainmaker, he ends up on Omega's shoulders. And he sort of almost gives himself a one-winged angel. Because he rolls forward and like Omega lands and then he lands on the back of his head and, and shoulders. But Omega never like tucks him in or anything. He never gets his head hand up on the neck. No, I think he it's... He just sort of drops him going up. I think this is uh, Omega's version of the short Rainmaker. Yeah. He's just hitting it because the moment's there. And it's because there's like... The, ex- the the level of energy is expended because of how important it is because of the emotional like trauma well not trauma the emotional stress he's been through he, he doesn't feel like that he's got the time to set it up properly he thinks he's there he's like 80 percent of the work's done i'm just gonna skip the last 20 hit what i've got and then work from there and so they're both out essentially and there's this brilliant visual of them just sat side by side not facing each other, but literally side by side, sitting against the ropes. And Okada just has that, he's gone, look, yeah. on, in his eyes. Like, there's no, he doesn't know where he is. Like, even better than Johnny Gargano can do. And He's got so, double glazed glass eyes. Yeah, and so Omega just wills himself back up, 
does the sprint, V triggers into the camera, again, just a, the New Japan style. Like, you almost wish it was in 3D, and you just go, oh, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> you know? If ever wrestling was in 3D, I'd want it just for that shot. And then he, uh... I'd love to see, like, a 4D wrestling experience, where just one guy in the, um, like, third row in the, <laughs> cinema, in the cinema just got kneed by an usher every time it happened, or something like that. But instead of that, we get a one-winged angel, and I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, he hooks the leg. He does. Hooks the leg! Hook the leg! Hook the leg! Hook the leg! It's how happy oh, Don is God. as well. Like, again, I've compared him to Bobby Heenan with Ric Flair before. Like, that is as good, a, that's as memorable a call as, yes! 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 yes. Similarly quite orgasmic, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> They're just so happy for them. And it's, it's nice. I like it when, like, commentators are... It'd have been a hell of a night for Winnipeg. Look <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I say, maple syrup for everyone. And that's the match, and then they do like the sort of uh, partly the WrestleMania ten thing as well, where the young bucks come out and they haven't been there ringside for it to happen, but they were happy and Omega's won it, and he's there. With the red shoes is holding the belt in front of him, and he pushes the belt away so that he can hug Matt Jackson before he. Celebrates yeah. with the title because he has the title now, so he doesn't need to have that be all that he has. You know, he has something else. He's already won the title, but if he goes for the hug with Matt, he's won back his friends as well. Yeah. And then uh, Ibushi gets in on that four-way hug action. <laughs> God, can you imagine that as a faction? That'd be like well, that's God. what they became for a brief time after that. The, yeah. the Golden Elite, they were called. Jesus, so good. But like I said, you know, six months later, Kenny, the Young Bucks, Cody up on the uh, on the rail on the ramps, you know, it's they follow Cody essentially yep. into the new world of AEW, and we've never seen another Okada Omega's match since then. And I think it's pretty obvious the way things ended up going that the plan was for Omega to hold onto the belt, beat Tanahashi at Wrestle uh, Wrestle Kingdom. Probably defend it maybe against Jay White, who ended up winning it from Tanahashi at the February show. And then we would have got Okada Omega 5 at the Madison Square Garden show, and Okada would have probably won the title there. Thus uh, making the series 2-2-1. It would have made sense, yeah. I, think, I, I can imagine one of the reasons that New Japan are pissed off with AEW and don't look to be setting up a relationship with them any time in the near future is because they entrusted Omega. They had him go over their top guy more than their top guy went over him on the assumption that he would return it and they'd be all even at Madison Square Garden. And instead, Omega left. Yeah. But, I mean, he's always been like harping. He believes it when he says, change the world. Yeah, and he, he believed he wanted said to... said that, that Japan was his home and New Japan was his home. He'd always said that. Well, yeah, no, you, you, there are people, but then again, there are people who like get married more than once, you know, just because well, no, you... you're trying to say like, well, he was saying one thing. I was like, well, no, he said the other. And you were trying to say that him feeling that one way is the sincere one. Well, why wasn't what he said before the sincere one? Well, I, I guess he thought he could change the world in Japan, but then he saw that it was a different opportunity. One way he would have more creative input. Well, here's what one for doing. you now, Si. Make a prediction now. Is that the last Okada Omega match we're ever going to see? 
No. I don't know how and I don't know where, but I just get a feeling we will get it one more time. Will it be in a New Japan ring or an AEW ring? Ah, I just said I don't know. Um, Gun to my head. New Japan. I think Omega's returning the favour if that were to be the case. I think that would be a great way for AEW to, like, extend the olive branch to New Japan. Like, please come into a relationship with us. We will let Omega beat Okada. Yeah, I mean, it's a good negotiation to have. Yeah, on the table. It feels like it's too... New Japan have their ways, though. They, they, they're they keen on loyalty. They stayed loyal to Ring of Honor for God knows how long than they needed to. Yeah, and probably should have like cut that relationship short earlier. And they also don't take... An, you know, I think they took it as an affront when Cody, the Young Bucks, Kenny, Hangman Page, all these other guys left. At um, once. At, you know, and, they, and they've been able to keep rebuilding from there but they've still i don't think you know like i said omega's career has never really reached this height since then he's his title reign it wasn't a bust but outside of the tanahashi match it wasn't really that impressive yeah well Um, again he's not and a lot of people have said like after this match he's not even close to have been one of the top 10 wrestlers in the world not even close no he's not had the match yet in AEW. Um, at I time think, of recording. At time of recording. I think injury got in the way of the Moxley one, obviously. Um, but even then, you know, the pack match didn't blow everyone's mind. Well, no, but you didn't have any build. The it's fiddly. The match didn't, wasn't nearly as close to getting five stars as it did from Meltzer in um, the Wrestling Observer. No, I do. I do didn't agree with that point. Match. I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I... Uh, yeah, Jericho's weird in AEW. Mm. Well, you know. Um, so, Simon, let's, the first things first. Are you giving this five stars? Yes. I'm also giving it five stars. Now, the bigger question. How do you rank those four matches? I mean, I guess it gives away the shop a bit, really. I guess it gives away too much, actually, for the debrief. I was, I was going to say that the best way is for you, for the next debrief, where you'll find out, but... You've given all four of their matches five stars. I have, yeah. It's hard. It's, you know what? Off the top of my head, I've not, I've not, I couldn't actually answer that question now because I've not (laughs) sat down and looked at my rankings and, you know, reviewed and thought about it. But what I can tell you is when I do, it's going to be a hell of a struggle. I think every match is going to have its champions for the rest of its days. I think there'll be some that say the first was the purest, it was the simplest, it was the one that changed everything the first time, and now it's just kind of, you know, Meltzer's brain's never been the same. Yeah. There are some that will prefer the 60-minute time limit match because it took that and built upon it, and it was also, you know, there were no breaks, there was no anything like that. Um, it maybe had more of a new... I mean, I, you know, it was even more physically taxing than, than this match was, arguably. Yeah, and... Um, the for the third one at G one because of the uh, time constraints. Well, yeah, there are those that think that Okada gets goes far too long and and champion the third match as the best one because it disciplined them within the thirty minute time limit. And because as a result, it's a different vibe of match entirely. Yeah, and then there are of course those that say this the longest match, the pinnacle, the what it's all been built up to, the Omega winning the title, the one where they've got no constraints on time. Or yeah, 
and uh, the two out of three falls allows an ebb and a flow and a three ma- three act structure, and they and they challenge themselves and reinvent themselves. And you know, Okada doesn't go any d- slower on himself for this. But, like to give you an idea, this is at the end of a seven hundred and twenty day reign as champion. Uh, like Meltzer said, he given the previous matches, you know, in total four point eight six star rate stars. So if I can just quickly do the maths on that. Um, just punching away on the calculator there. Yeah. Uh, he's not dressed like Carol Vorderman or Rachel Riley whilst he's doing this, uh, listeners. Which so I think, like, basically, he averages over five stars, I think, in total for his 13 matches as the champion. He held about for 720 days straight after beating Naito, who'd also only held it for two months after he'd lost it. Um, to give you an idea, he'd been back in New Japan from the 4th of January 2012 to this on the 9th of June 2018. He was IWGB Heavyweight Champion for 1,516 of those days, just under two-thirds of his time back in New Japan. He's been the champion. And, you know, there are pressures and requirements for you to reach a standard that he kept. And he did all this before he, he's not 30 at the point of this match. Yeah. And also there's pressures outside the ring, all the extra media you've got to do, mm. you know, the standards you've got to keep, um, the way you carry yourself as a and champion. Like, and like they said, he's obviously pushed him, he's obviously reached, a, attained a, a standing in the general public's point of view that, you know, he means more than any of those as well. And like, he's already hold, held the title for longer at that point than anyone else in, in wrestling in, in New Japan. Uh, Tanahashi at that point had a reign of around 1,300 days, I think, or so. Uh, Kijimuto had 1,238. Shinya Hashimoto had 1,052. His title reign had been the longest before uh, Kazuchika Okada. Obviously, Kazuchika Okada has also broken Tanahashi's record of the most defenses as well, successful defenses with 12. Yeah. Whether he himself will be able to break that in the future, who knows? Because you've got to assume... We've got at least, you know, after this match, you you've got to assume you've got at least eight matches, eight more years of of full blown, full bore Okada to before go, he um, starts before slowing he might down. Start to slow down. Obviously, injuries and everything can have their toll. Yeah, take their toll, or you know, something horrible could happen. But you know, if if people make the case that he's the best of all time. I'm going to struggle to argue with that in many ways. It's difficult because obviously... It's different horses for courses, but within the modern context... Well, no, I was going to say, the reason it's difficult is because he's got so much time left, if you know what I mean. It's... Yeah. It's like when footballers release... legacy as well, Yeah, we know. It's like when footballers release a book at 25. It's like, Mm. no, wait. And I, I think I'd like to look back in like the autumn stroke winter of Okada's career before we could like before it's we could have well, that conversation with the benefit of actual knowledge but in terms of his ability and what he's done so far he's well on the way and if the trajectory stays the same touch wood he stays injury free and what have you then yeah he's gonna be at the top table he's gonna be eating with the greats yeah it's gonna be that question as well of like what is Okada Okada in the Tanahashi position when someone else, maybe one of the current young lions, comes back. 
a couple of years down the line, and he has the feud with him in him in the Tanahashi Saruta role against the other one as the Misawa Okada figure. I mean, like I said, at this point, oh, Misawa's the only one that has more five. Well, Misawa and Kabashi are the only ones that have more five star matches than Okada. Okada already has more singles five star matches than any of anyone. Yeah. Um. And logically, because he's again, it's uh, just Misawa, Kabashi, and Kawada that he has to overtake. Yeah, and if we assume the trajectory stays the same, he's going to do that. Yeah. Um, but then again, stiffen horses for different courses because Dave has accelerated um, his five star giving out because rapidly. of the actions of these two men, essentially. Yeah, they was that that's a, is that is Okada then breaking the record? Him reaping the benefits of being of putting that in putting that out there of breaking the scale, so to speak. Well, I think what's interesting as well is how Meltzer points out that. These guys are taking influence from so many different areas. There's obviously bits of American wrestling in there. There's bits of Japanese wrestling, New Japan and All Japan. There's so much All Japan Kings Road in this match. Um, Also, Omega, like you've said, has incorporated video games into his way of wrestling as well in this. And Okada's presentation, and we've already seen that he has the map-based knowledge of British wrestling and all these other things, and he's obviously got so much charisma in a, in a very different way to what Inoki had and Hashimoto had, and unusual New Japan figures had, really, outside of uh, Kijimuto and then Tanahashi. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Omega's reinvented what a, a gaijin in, in Japan is as well, really. Um, reaching levels that no one had before, outside of Big Van Vader and, and those guys in the early 80s. With the fact, the sense of a, of a, of a gaijin as the native, really, I you know, with him speaking Japanese and everything, yeah, um, quite comfortably as well. Like, well, he lived there for years. And yeah, he always was loved Japanese culture. Um, I don't really want to go much longer. We've gone over an hour at time of recording. Maybe we've cut some stuff out, but that's where we are. Um, it's a bloody good match, isn't it? But I must say, like I said. For the first 20 or so minutes, because of the slow pace they were working, which some people tick down for these guys, and there are people who say that like Ishii's better than Okada because he doesn't need 20 minutes of boring build-up to get there. Different horses for courses, obviously. Right. And it was also that, and just the knowledge going in of, like, this is... Uh, there was a point where I was like, if I was to rank these, I think at one point I would have said this is the fourth out of the four, as weird as it sounds, the seven-star match in that moment sounded the weakest and I think if someone said it was their least favourite I wouldn't have a problem I wouldn't have a problem with them saying that yeah um, because this this is what we try and hammer home with all of this mm. is yes we're talking about obviously one man deciding that this is these the matches the greatest match of all time and, and in general for the whole series that these matches are like the elite of wrestling matches but wrestling in itself is very subjective like Everything's subjective. Everything Everything that's not maths is subjective. Yeah. But I think what separates this from just regular subjection is... I'd be very hard-pressed to see someone put a reasoned argument why none of these four matches are any good. Well, yeah, I mean... They'll be out there. People will be out there that will do it. I mean, good can be just like the new Terminator movie was good. (laughs) You know, but that doesn't also mean you're arguing for being the best film of the year... Well, the best film of all time, and this is obviously 
Mount Satan, this is the best match of all time. I mean, seven stars. Yeah. Seven, Simon. <laughs> seven stars, Jeremy. Do you think, do you think he'll ever go seven and a quarter or eight? Well, I never, well we, I never thought he'd ever go seven, so quite possibly. I don't, think a, I don't think a first match between two guys could start off on an eight. I think it would have to build its way up to an eight. Yeah. I think it's going to be a... I couldn't tell you who it's going to be that would do it, and I don't think it'll be for a while yet. Yeah. I, I it, think it'll re- probably be someone that we don't know the name of at this time. Yeah, Maybe. I think wrestling... Or is someone like a young lion that we don't yet know what they could achieve. Yeah, I think wrestling's wave is has, has sort of crested, and we're about to go into a bit of a uh, decline, not in terms of, like, overall quality, it... but I think in terms of people hitting the absolute top. Well, is it because the best are now split in more places? At this time, your best are either in WWE or in there in New Japan, and that's pretty much it. Now they can be in WWE, they can be in New Japan, they can be in AEW as well. And there is that prospect in All Japan that's getting four and quarters, four and a half matches as well. I forget his name, but I'm sure... Uh, Kento Miyahara. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, that is possibly the downside of of wrestlers having so many And also maybe because just these matches are becoming cliches, and then it will get to the point that it won't mean as much like with the Noahs they're doing versions of them the old King's Road style but they're not quite as good at it and those that were practicing in it aren't physically capable of going that pace that's yeah. why it'll be interesting to see Okada who does he go with when Naito Tanahashi and now already Omega's gone and Tanahashi and Naito will not be around in like four years time three or four years time so when Okada's in his mid-30s who is going to be there with him. He's willing Sonada to be up on that level with him, and that's someone that we're going to encounter a few times coming forward in more Okada matches. Actually, that's interesting. Let's have a look at who are the people that Okada's now having five-star matches with after this one that we've got for the uh, time of recording for the rest of this run. Uh, It's Tanahashi. uh, It's Omega and Ibushi as a tag team match. That's the only Okada tag team match we've got to look forward to. Uh, it's Sonada and it's Will Ospreay. There's another one, Will Ospreay. I guess maybe he will take the Kenny Omega role, possibly, of being the... No, he's, the, no, he's going into the... Um, well, most likely going into the heavyweight, yes. You would assume so. Well, he's already started to this year with the G1 uh, appearances. Maybe Shingo Takagi. Uh, maybe Evil. I don't know yet if he's necessarily capable of going to that level. Yeah. Um, maybe like I said there is probably one of these young lions right now that's gonna, maybe it's going to be shooter. Maybe it is going to be shooter. Maybe it's someone who's just treading water in the WWE, whose contract will expire and they will end up in Japan. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we could have, we could have the so or yeah. <laughs> that's 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 a match I want to see in my life. I would love to see an Okada Cesaro match. Well, yeah, of course I was. I was, yeah, just about to say literally the same thing. Um, or you could have... Matt Riddle, maybe. Maybe Matt Riddle. Um, maybe Champa, maybe Gargano. Maybe Finn, if Finn gets... I don't, think, I don't think Gargano will be allowed into a heavyweight scene to face a, a Kasuchika Crow card. And I think Gargano is going to be happy in WWE as long as he's making Triple H and Shawn Michaels happy. Yeah, I know. Um, let's, let's, let's put a pin in this. We've already gone way over. 
Yeah. So, Simon, how can people get in touch with you to maybe offer you some more names for such a list? Uh, people can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free, free for the number of falls in this match. Uh, my name's Lorcan Mullins, L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for all-time record, N for no such thing as seven stars. That's my Twitter handle, that's my Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. if you want to put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Our next match, Simon, after we've gone through the insanity of seven stars, we might as well gouge our eyes out at the, stars, <laughs> at the size of a mere five-star match. But it's not going to be in New Japan, but it's going to be a bit close to the home to uh, at least one of us. Uh, it is what indeed. Are we see? Uh, we're on NXT television. We're not at a takeover. It's the uh, only tele- non-takeover show to get five stars. From yeah. NXT. And we are watching Undisputed Era's representatives, uh, Roderick Strong and Kyle O'Reilly, take on Trent Seven and Tyler Bate, Mustache Mountain. Newly crowned NXT tag team champions. Oh. I so, bet you're loving the West Midlands, like, you know, representation in this. Oh, it's Boston. <laughs> anyway, there's nothing else left to say at this point except my name is Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a seven-star life until the next life. Yeah.